Okay, good evening. Welcome. And uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be back on Wednesday evenings um, for Bible study. Um, we've been meeting for prayer for a number of weeks. That's been a blessing. But uh, to, to go the next step and to uh, continue for Bible study, um, praise the Lord for this opportunity. Um, hope you've got a copy of the notes uh, tonight. We're looking at uh, God is Sovereign. Now, if you're part of the prayer group, um, we uh, did have there that we're on, on in the that on the prayer sheet that what our study would be on tonight. Okay, I just heard you praying. Okay, um, it it was supposed to be on the fact that God is immutable. Okay, and uh, the topic of God is sovereign is going to be next week. But I felt that it was uh, I felt constrained to just change that because I'm very mutable okay and um, we just accept this as being God part of God's sovereign plan uh, for this evening okay so uh, there you go now um, first Chronicles 29 um, is a scripture that we're going to end up at and so it would be good to have that uh, uh, open and ready to go uh, plenty of other scriptures that we'll be referring to. Some have been recorded on the notes for you. Others, they're just the references given um, so that uh, you can write them in yourself. Probably not now, but you can go back and just uh, complete the study that way. Um, so, um, let's, uh, let's pray and uh, commit our time uh, to the Lord in Bible study tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that uh, we can come to you and address you in that way. And uh, Lord, thank you that uh, uh, that uh, approach to you uh, really does uh, open the way uh, of many blessings for us. Uh, we know that you love to give good gifts to your children uh, when they ask you for things. And so we uh, thank you that we've been able to pray in the prayer time together. And now as uh, we come to the word, we pray that you would be pleased to lead us and guide us. Please teach us your ways. Teach us the kind of God that you are. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, grow in our knowledge and our understanding uh, of our great God. And uh, Lord, we know that the, uh, the benefits and the blessings of that will be immense in our lives, uh, Lord, each day um, and uh, throughout all eternity. Uh, we will uh, enjoy um, the great God that you are forever uh, praising you for all your wonderful works uh, please uh, bless our time together in the word tonight for Jesus sake amen <clears throat> now by way of review so far in this uh, series on the attributes of God we've seen that God is incomprehensible yet knowable he is eternal he is self-existent and self-sufficient <clears throat> He's omnipresent, omni being the Latin word for all, so God is all present, or he's the God of infinite place. He is omniscient, he's the God of infinite knowledge. He is omnipotent, the God of infinite power, which is closely related to our focus this evening, which is uh, God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign. Now, that, uh, what does that mean? Well, the word sovereign <coughs> comes from the Latin word meaning above or supreme or chief. Now, if you look at the word sovereign, you can see the word reign in there, which is what a king does. That is one, the one who has supreme authority the one who is the supreme ruler. In other words, the sovereignty of God means that he is the God of infinite rule. He rules and reigns over all things, all elements, all beings, all places, all elements, uh, sorry, all events, all circumstances, all time. In your notes, he is infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. He does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. Isaiah 46.10 says, the Lord says, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God's sovereignty means that God is God, in fact, as well as in name. That is, in your notes, he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things, after the counsel of his own will. A phrase from what verse does anyone know? According to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians 1.11. God's sovereignty speaks of his position. He's the chief being in the universe. And it speaks of his power. He is supreme in power in the universe. And how God exercises his position and power is revealed in the scriptures. Now, a sovereign could be a dictator. God is not. Or a sovereign could abdicate the use of his power. God has not. In your notes, ultimately, God is in complete control of all things. Though he may choose to let certain events happen according to natural laws that he has ordained, like the law of gravity, for example, uh, or the laws of physics. Okay, if you crash into something, it will hurt. Okay, or the laws of entropy. Everything's winding down. These are natural laws that God has put into place. <clears throat> and he may choose to let certain events happen just according to natural laws that he has ordained. In other words, everything that happens comes about because he either directly causes it or consciously allows it. And I think if you can grasp that statement, it will be very helpful to you. The idea of God's infinite rule is not only difficult to grasp because our minds are very, very small, but it's also difficult to trust unless we've first spent some time considering other aspects of his nature. For example... It would be out of order to present to you a God of infinite authority and power without first pointing to his omnipotence. 
while God's omnipotence asserts that there's no limit to his ability, no limit to his ability to act, God's sovereignty asserts that there's no limits to his authority to act. So also with his omniscience and his omnipresence, his self-sufficiency, his self-existence, his eternality, all of these attributes single God out as uh, not just capable of ruling, but of imminently qualified to rule. In your notes, every attribute we've considered thus far has been moving us towards this inevitable conclusion the most right and logical place for God to inhabit, it, inhabit is a throne. No wonder the Bible portrays him there so often. For example, Psalm 45.6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Psalm 93.2, thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. Lamentations 5.19, thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. Revelation 5.13, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honour and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And it's only when we understand that this is the kind of God with whom we have to do will we take seriously the issue of his authority. Now that many people don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty. They don't want a sovereign God. Certainly non-Christians, but even a lot of Christians don't want a sovereign God, because we don't want someone ruling over us. We want to be autonomous. Now, Satan knows this propensity very well. He has it himself. He didn't want, doesn't want to submit to God. Wants to be autonomous. When he tempted Eve in the garden, Satan said, God knows that when you eat this fruit, you'll be just like him, autonomous. You'll be able to think your own thoughts, do your own thing, go your own way. Be your own person. Don't let God stifle you. Be autonomous in your notes. But once you understand God's sovereignty, you realise no one can be autonomous from him. You and I function in a universe over which he has absolute control by causing or allowing everything. Now, when we know that kind of God, it will dramatically change the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live. Let's just assemble a couple of uh, things here under the heading. First of all, uh, God does whatever he pleases. The sovereignty of God means that he exercises his prerogative to do whatever he pleases with his creation. God can do with his creation whatever he pleases simply because it's all his. And you note Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that everything that fills the earth belongs to the Lord. The world belongs to him. They that dwell therein, it's all the Lord's. By virtue of ownership, God can do whatever he wants to do 
whenever he wants to do it. By virtue of ownership, God is free to do what he chooses. Now, suppose someone comes into your home and says, I don't like your furniture. I don't particularly like the art that you have on the walls. The way that you got your bedroom organised is an eyesore. You need to move that chest of drawers over here. You need to move the bed over there. Your kitchen utensils, your plates, your saucers don't really fit my taste. You have to change it. Now, we'd have one response for that person, polite, I would hope, and that would be something like this. You know, when you start paying the rent or when you start paying the mortgage, when you start paying the bills and when you start buying the furniture, then perhaps I'll listen to your viewpoint. But as long as this is my place, as long as I'm the one paying the rent or paying the mortgage or paying the money, your viewpoint carries no clout in my house. Now, I trust you can see the point. When you start making universes and creating planets and giving life and taking care of everything, perhaps then you can start dictating how God ought to run the universe. But until and unless you get that kind of divine clout, you cannot take upon yourself any divine prerogatives. In your notes, the prerogative always belongs to God, never to us, and he does whatever he chooses. Now let me show you that this is not just a fleeting thought in the Bible, it's an overwhelming doctrine. Job says, Job 23 verse 13, that God is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job 42.2 puts it this way. I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. You can't overrule God, you can't escape him, even in your thoughts. According to Psalm 115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 135 verse 6 tells us whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did in the heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. On this matter, the New Testament is not silent either. Paul says, Ephesians 1.11, that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And Romans 11.36 testifies, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not even evil and unrighteousness can escape the all-controlling hand of God. I love Revelation 19, verse 6, which says, Alleluia, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. God reigns, he rules, even when it looks like he's not ruling, he's ruling. Even when chaos appears, he's ruling over the chaos. Even when things are falling apart, he's ruling the falling apart of those things. Our God is sovereign. That means he decides. And that means there's no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as luck. <clears throat> I suppose the word should exist in the dictionary uh, as the imaginary thing that it is. But it ought to be expunged from at least serious usage. You're never lucky or unlucky 
In your notes, under God, no chance happenings occur. Anything that happens to you, good or bad, must pass through his fingers first. There are no accidents with God. I like the story of the cowboy who applied for health insurance. The agent routinely asked him, have you had any accidents? The cowboy replied, well, I've not had any accidents. I was bitten by a rattlesnake once and a horse did kick me in the ribs, laid me up for a while, but I haven't had any accidents. The agent says, well, wait a minute, I'm confused. Rattlesnake bit you, horse kicked you, weren't those accidents? He says, no, they did those things on purpose. And the cowboy had the right kind of idea. Things just don't happen. Everything that occurs, occurs under the hand of a sovereign God. Just think about Job's sufferings. Think about Job's sufferings and in one way we can attribute them to the direct activity of Satan. But above that, there was a God who permitted all these things. And none of those things would not have happened at all were they not permitted by God. Once we begin to understand this, all of life takes on a different shape, a different perspective. In a universe which is controlled by a sovereign God, in your notes, there can be no chance happenings, no luck, no mistakes, good and bad, fall under his ultimate control. A great example of that is in Exodus 4, where Moses tries to tell God, he said, look, I, I can't talk, I'm not eloquent, I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. And maybe they were just excuses, or maybe there's more to it. But God immediately replies to the very next verse, Who has made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God knew about Moses' issues with his mouth. God gave it to him. Not the smallest detail in our lives escapes him, none. Now that does create a problem for us because it raises a question that now has to be answered. If in fact God is this kind of God, if he's the one who decides all things, then why do my decisions matter? In your notes, if God is sovereign and has already determined everything that will happen according to what pleases him, either directly causing it or consciously allowing it, then why do I need to choose? Why not just sit back, relax, let God do what he's going to do since he's going to do it anyway? Now here we find a sometimes traumatic tension, if you will. Let me try to explain. The theological term for this kind of thing is an antimony. That is parallel truths that run side by side that do not appear to intersect at all. On the one hand, we have a sovereign God. On the other hand, we get to choose. But if we get to choose, then how much is he really in control? 
And if he's really in control, then why, why do we need to choose? Now, I certainly don't propose to have the last word on the subject of this tension between divine sovereignty and human free will. However, I can offer you an illustration. <clears throat> Suppose I were to go into the city and my destination being town hall. That is my determined purpose. <clears throat> but I'm not limited to just one option for getting there. I could take a train from Reesby Station, be there in about 30 minutes, arrive at my destination. However, for one reason or another, I may choose a, a different route. I might choose to leave by Bankstown Station, go a different way. Or I might drive. I could drive via the Hume Highway or via Canby Road or take the M5 onto the M1 or the M8 onto the M4. Now those choices in no way impede me from getting to Town Hall because these are numerous and various legitimate ways of getting there. While my goal remains the same, I can keep my options open in a similar way. God has determined in his sovereign will where he's going to end up how things are going to end up in your notes. But within the context of his will, he has many options for getting there, many different routes. He allows you to make choices. Your choices will not determine whether God ends up where he wants to go. He will arrive at his destination, but your choices affect which route he takes. God is going to get there either through you or around you or over you or by you, or in spite of you. Regardless of the decisions you make, God will achieve his intended purposes. You get to participate in choosing the route that God takes. Does he use you, or does he bypass you? Does he bless you, or does he remove you? You will not stop God's plan. You will not stop God, stop God getting from where he wants to go. The question is, how will it be for you when, he arri when it arrives? For example, God has determined that in all eternity, men exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, one of the ends toward which God moves is that all men were created to give glory to his name, particularly the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Some people are doing that now, and some of us will be praising the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven for all eternity as we live in the endless joyous joyousness of heaven. But another group will be speaking of Christ in hell. And in the midst of their eternal sufferings, they basically do the same thing. They're bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. They're confessing that he is Lord. There's no atheists in hell. Nobody there doubts the existence of God. No one there does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. All men will for all time do exactly what God has ordained be done. But he's given a choice. 
as to which route people might take. What about prayer? What about God's sovereignty and prayer? God has determined to do what he's going to do. But he will not do certain things until we or someone chooses to pray. James 4.2 says, Ye have not because ye ask not. It's like a mother who's got a very sick child. She knows when she puts a child to bed that she's going to have to get up in the middle of the night to minister to the child, and she's determined to do so. But she won't get up until the child calls out. Now, the child does not make the mother do something. She has already decided what she's going to do, but she's also decided not to do it until she's called. And so in the middle of the night when she hears, Mama, the mother will do what she's already planned to do. And in a similar way, God has determined what he's going to do. But on some of those things, he says, I won't do it until I hear you call out, or someone call out, Dear Heavenly Father. And when we call on him, he responds. That's what he's determined to do. And God has given us the option, that is, within his sovereign will, of being in, involved in how we fit into the outworking of his sovereign plans. No one will thwart the plans of God, but we can choose to be part of it and cooperate with God in it and God gives us the privilege of doing so let's think for a moment about God's sovereignty and our sin any serious thinking about the sovereignty of God about he being the supreme ruler over all things in the universe gives rise to the question of in your notes the origin that's the word that's missing there the origin of evil since God is sovereign why did he allow the existence and the proliferation of evil especially in light of several things that we know about God for example from Romans 1 18 we know that God hates sin his wrath is revealed from heaven against it from Isaiah 6.3, we know that God is completely holy. Psalm 5, verse 4, 1 John 1, 5, no, we know that God himself cannot sin. Furthermore, James 1.13, he cannot tempt others to, think, to sin. Theologians have pondered this question for ages. There's no simple final word on the subject. However, there are several scripture references that do guide our thinking on this matter. First of all, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12 says, In whom also we have obtained inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. God has purposed to work all things including us, to the praise of his glory. Everything exists for that purpose, to the praise of his glory. In other words, 
Since God does everything for his highest glory, therefore we must naturally conclude that ultimately God will get more glory with the existence of sin than without it. Now that makes sense because some of God's attributes whereby he is seen by us to be so glorious, some of his attributes are most clearly demonstrated against the backdrop of sin. For example, the greatness of his love. The greatness of his love is shown most clearly in contrast to our sinfulness. The sinfulness of man whereby he would crucify the Son of God. That kind of sinfulness just magnifies the love of God. Serves to magnify the love of God. God's holiness and wrath. Two indispensable aspects of his nature could never be fully seen by us without the reality of sin. More importantly, the magnificence of his grace could hardly be measured except against the ugliness of sin. <laughs> Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 7 talks about what God is doing in the church and, it's in, and it's, Paul says, God is doing all of this so that his manifold grace might be known through all ages. In other words, God's grace in this way is not manifest, can't be manifest unless there is this thing called the church by which Christ gave his life to redeem it because of its sinfulness. In your notes, thus in allowing sin, the glory of God's attributes and character is most visibly displayed second in allowing the existence of evil God is allowing everything that can be attempted to thwart his kingdom so that throughout the ages to come it will be unquestionably clear that no enemy or scheme can succeed against the Almighty One. When all of Earth's history is over, no one will ever again come up with the dumb idea of rebelling against God's authority. For the Earth's history will demonstrate that every attempt to rebel against God has already been made and failed. None have been successful. And this comprehensive, in your notes, this comprehensive defeat of evil will be the primary basis for God's people giving him the praise that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Thirdly, God allows evil because of his love. God does not wish to coerce obedience. For God to coerce obedience would, be, would invalidate the authentic nature of that obedience. In order for a man to function authentic, authentically as God's image bearer, which includes functioning as a moral agent with the power to choose, the possibility of evil must exist. For God to have negated that possibility would be for him to null, nullify the very thing he created. Personhood would be reduced to robotics. We must therefore conclude that God neither causes sin, incites it, authorizes it, or approves of it. However, he does permit it by allowing his creatures whom he has endowed with a moral will to rebel against his authority. 
But then he sovereignly overrules that evil to accomplish his sovereign purposes and designs. In your notes, in, allowing of, in the allowance of evil, God demonstrates how great he really is. Or as Joseph so accurately articulated when giving an analysis of the situation of the, done to him by his brothers who sold him to slavery, what does he say? Genesis 50 verse 20, But as for you, you thought evil against me. Your intentions were only evil, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God had made promises concerning the nation of Israel. You know, how, how, he, how he got them down to Egypt and cared for them, that was, that, was for his, that was for his concern. He'd work it out one way or another. But he gave Jacob's sons the opportunity to be involved in that, and their involvement in that was really, really bad. But God wasn't hindered by that. Such is his sovereignty. Fourthly, Let's think about God's sovereignty in our perspective. The sovereignty of God provides the Christian with a proper perspective in which to view all of life. And if we can get the sovereignty of God straight, then our life in Christ begins to take shape. Strength. <clears throat> God sovereignly gives strength to us in the midst of our weakness. There is, of course, the weakness that, that, the weakness that comes quite naturally through ageing and through diminishing capacity. However, there is also the weakness that's very evident when we see ourselves pitted against the devil, the pressure of the world and the power of the flesh. And yet Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13 Everything that God wants me to do, I am able to do. I am enabled to do it. God will strengthen me to do everything that he wants me to do. As Christ supplies, so I can do. But I'm totally dependent upon his supply. He rules and reigns over all things. He has power. He apportions it to us according to our needs to obey his commands. Comfort. God sovereignly also gives comfort in the midst of life's circumstances. Life is bittersweet. One day you can wake up and be on top of the world. Job's going well. The money's flowing in. All our relationships are intact. Wake up saying, oh, what a beautiful morning. People are great. Kids are great. Everything's great. Any of that or all of that can change very quickly. But when you have a sovereign God, it means that the negative and the positive do not come by chance. The flat tyre that made you miss the interview that you were banking on to get that job in some way was part of God's sovereign plan. The situation that you thought was going to work out in a certain way, the job that you were sure would be given to you was given to someone else. It's all part of God's sovereign plan. And if God, who is sovereign, is infinitely wise, 
and more loving than we can ever comprehend. Then we're comforted by the fact that God has a sovereign plan. He's involved in all of these things. Confidence. God's sovereignty means that he allows no chance happenings, no luck, no mistakes, no accidents. And therefore, we can have confidence. And pray like this. It's in your notes. Lord, you did what I thought you weren't going to do. That's because you want to do something else in my life. And by faith, I'll watch and wait to see how you're going to use what you just did to do what you want to do. Lord, I submit to your good purposes. I yield to your wise ways. Some ingredients of a cake taste good by themselves, but other ingredients in a cake taste terrible by themselves. Baking soda, flour, nutmeg, but when you mix all the ingredients together and get the mixer churning, the good and the bad ingredients blend together to produce something for the better. And when that cake comes out of the oven, the good and the bad have all been so mixed together, so integrated that they produce something that is worth the wait. And if you can talk in terms of parables, God is baking a cake in our lives. He's taking the good and the bad and mixing them together through the Holy Spirit so that when he's finished with it, through the various trials that he brings you through, you will come forth as something very pleasing, very satisfying, both to you and to him. And this is the assurance. This is the confidence that Romans 8.28 gives us. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. When you love God and you're convinced of his love for you, when you walk with God, when you live under his control, when you're in his hands, you understand that whatever happens is for our good. Now that may not be evident to us initially, because we have a very limited perspective. We're like the boy trying to work on a puzzle. Can't even get two bits together. But then along comes his father, and in a couple of minutes, the whole puzzle is assembled. The boy asks, Dad, how did you do that? He says, son, you were looking at the pieces. I says, I, I saw the bigger picture. I saw the big picture. And so it all depends on what you see. From our perspective, it's very easy just to see one piece at a time because we live one day at a time. But God sees the whole picture. And God can put the whole thing together. When you understand the sovereignty of God, you believe in the power of prayer. You can't change people. Very often you can't even change your circumstances, but we can pray and prayer changes things because God is sovereign. And that's why we should, in fact, be amazed at people who quit on things when they've never fasted and prayed about it. 
If you haven't fasted and prayed, you haven't done all that God has called you to do because Jesus says certain things only happen and only come by fasting and prayer. Certain things you don't get just because you want them and you've done your best. Certain things only come because you've prayed about them to the point of giving up cravings for your appetites or other things. Unless you've understood the sovereignty of God, then God appears very often just like a nice person who does nice things every now and again. Finally, let's think about God's sovereignty and our worship. The sovereignty of God should lead us to enthusiastic worship of him. You know what should draw us to church on Sunday? It's the fact that a sovereign God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, he wants to have a meeting with us. It's the fact that this great God who gives us the air that we breathe every day and who provides everything that we need, he wants to have a meeting with us. When you have a boss who's responsible for your paycheck, you're keen to get to work, even if you hate the job. Because you know you're not autonomous. But if we give our bosses honour that's due them simply for a paycheck, how much more should we give honour to God? How much more should we give God the honour due unto his name for the life that he gives to us every day? Worship is the proper response. God's sovereignty. First Chronicles 29 brings this out very clearly. You've got your Bible open there. Context is David is he's running a building program. Israel's getting ready to build a house, uh, uh, build God a house. Then David challenges the people to bring their offerings for the temple and they which they're going to build for God. Verse 6 and 7 says, then the chief of the fathers and princes of the tribes of Israel and the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the rulers of the king's work offered willingly and they gave for the service of the house of God of gold 5,000 talents and 10,000 drams and of silver 10,000 talents and of brass 18,000 talents and 100,000 talents of iron. People give very, very generously to the house of God. And as they do so, verse 10 says, Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. And thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from thee. And thou reignest over all. And in thy hand is power and might. And in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we bless thee. We praise thy glorious name. That's what ought to draw us to church on Sunday. To praise God's glorious name because, what our, because of what our sovereign God and King is like. Who else can create the moon and the stars and the planets and other galaxies? Who else can create just the right temperature, keeping the earth rotating at just the right speed so that it rotates around the sun at just the right season? Who can give just the right animals from which we get just the right food and clothing 
who can create just the right kind of wood with which we can build houses and things. Who is like our God? He deserves your worship, your homage. He deserves your bowing before his face, glorifying his name. He deserves your enthusiastic worship. If you get your groceries delivered or packages delivered and the delivery driver doesn't show up, goes home instead and keeps the goods to himself, you'd call him unfaithful and make a fuss because he doesn't deliver on what he's supposed to do. If your refrigerator stops every week, you get in the repairman because it's it's undependable. If your water alternates between hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold, you're going to get it fixed because it's a very uncomfortable way to take a shower. If you missed every second rent payment or mortgage payment, you'd probably be moved out of your house because that's not the way the loan works or the agreement works. And what we expect of others and what we expect of ourselves should not our sovereign God expect of us And even more, he wants our dedicated, committed worship. So often we say, I find it hard to worship God. You don't know what's going on in my life. You're right. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know this. There's a lot going on in Isaiah's life. Uh, Added to all that, he was very busy in ministry as well. And it was evident that his worship was something less than it ought to have been because when we get to chapter 6, when his eyes are open to the greatness of God, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated upon a throne, angels sounding his praise, waiting to do his bidding, then his worship took on a whole new dimension. And so too did his service. God had work to do. He had a plan and he would accomplish it through one means or another. But he asked for a volunteer and Isaiah said, pick me, please, please pick me. And today and throughout all eternity, he's reaping the benefits. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And all that he pleases is for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you are so, uh, so far above us. And yet, Lord, you have come down to us in such a a wonderful way. High and lifted up, so far beyond us, but willing to come to us, to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us, to make yourself known to us. Incomprehensible, yet knowable. And we thank you, Lord, that tonight we've uh, learned uh, some things about your sovereignty, the fact that you rule and reign over all things. 
Uh, Lord, this is a comfort to us. This is an encouragement to us. This is a, a great help to us in our daily lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, we might be reminded of this uh, through the good and the bad. You are wise in all things. You rule over all things. Uh, and we can trust your wise governance of all things. Thank you that you're a God who is wonderfully trustworthy. Uh, Lord, help us to be people of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.